What a great privilege it is to welcome you to the Houghton Wesleyan Church this morning. Uh, We love having you here. We love being a family together. And I hope this morning that you can truly believe that this building and this family is a sanctuary for you in every sense of the word. Whatever you need this morning, I hope that this place can fulfill that need uh, in his spirit. Would you please stand with me and join with me in the responsive call to worship. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Please pray with me. Father, this morning, it is such a relief to know that you are a big God, a strong God, a powerful God, that you're not edgy or petulant or peevish, that you're not fragile, that you're not pretentious, that we don't have to walk on eggshells around you. Heavenly Father, it is a great honor that we bask today in the knowledge and the confidence and the glory that there is not one thing that we can face, that we can dread, that we can be afraid of, that we can suffer, that you cannot help us with and that you have not already conquered. And it is in that confidence and comfort that we proceed today and we honor you and thank you for caring so much about us. In your name, amen.
Amen. It's great to see you as we gather today for worship. Take a moment, share a word of peace, a word of greeting with others here in worship today. I'm Zach Rohn. When I hear, hello, it's me, I don't necessarily think of the lyrics to a popular song. I think of Jacob at his first birthday party. It's the first one he's ever had. After eating a cupcake with a picture of his face on it, he runs to the nearby payphone, picks up a receiver, and he says, Hi, Mom, it's me. You should see all the presents the cupcake, and all the people at my party, and, well, Jacob picked up that receiver every day at Royal Family Kids Camp to tell a story to parents who were not even at the other end of the phone in more than one way. Last week in adult Sunday school, we heard about how we can do local ministry with foster children. Royal Family is one of those ministries. We've offered royal family to abused, neglected kids like Jacob for the past 21 years. But we're at a time when many volunteers are moving on into other phases of their lives. Last year, we replaced a director and curriculum leaders, and we found new grandparents for the coming camp week. This year, we have need of male and female counselors, a music coordinator and leader, drama performers, and even someone to organize carnival games. Next year, we'll need a new videographer, and we'd love to train that person this year. Our 22nd camp week runs from July 10th through the 15th. And in the same way that we need volunteers, we would also welcome financial support, as many donors, like our volunteers, have moved on to other phases of their lives. You can speak to Nancy Murphy or me, or you can email us at houghton.rfkc at gmail.com. And I'll repeat that. Houghton.rfkc at gmail.com. Volunteer applications are needed by February 15th. We thank you for helping us help the little children come to Jesus.
Hey, thanks, Amanda and choir, for your faithful service to us in that beautiful, beautiful hymn. Please join me this morning as we read from Isaiah chapter 61, the year of the Lord's favor. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will be feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand and join me in the glory of Patrick.
As we contemplate our Heavenly Father's grace to us, we are reminded that he calls us to come and to acknowledge our need for him. And so I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. We confess to you, Lord, what we are. We are not the people we like others to think we are. We are afraid to admit, even to ourselves, what lies in the depths of our souls. We do not, however, want to hide our true selves from you. We believe that you know us as we are, and yet you still love us. Help us not to shrink from self-knowledge. Teach us to love ourselves for your sake. Give us the courage to put our trust in your guiding power. Raise us out of the paralysis of guilt and fear and take us into the freedom and energy of forgiven people. And for those who through long habit find forgiveness hard to accept, we ask that you would break our bondage and set us free. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Having confessed our sins together, we now have the opportunity to offer other prayers to God, words of praise and words of petition. As we pray, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayer, perhaps today you just feel like kneeling would be the right way for you to offer your prayers, please come and join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your love that reaches beyond what we could really comprehend. We've come today and we acknowledge that you are the great God of the universe. You've created all things. This is indeed your world because you made it. And we celebrate you and we rejoice in you. And as your children, we have come and we have acknowledged our sin, we've acknowledged our need for you, and we have have affirmed your love and forgiveness for us. And now, Father, we bring before you the burdens of our hearts, our own lives and the lives of others. This morning, Father, we pray for all who are grieving among us. Grief comes in a variety of ways, and and some of our grief is soon dissipated. Much of our grief continues. Help us in our grief to know your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health, and we pray for Elijah Beardsley, who is in the hospital undergoing tests. We pray for Calvin and Laurel Buecher, Warren Woolsey, for Bill Getty and Phil Muker, for Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, and for Micah Christensen, and for Linda Roth, and for Dick Gould, and Crystal Blake, and Emily Cricklar, and for others who, in this moment of silence, we offer our prayers. 
Father, we also pray for the other needs of our lives, relational needs, needs of employment, financial needs, spiritual needs. Lord, in this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Thank you for the ministries of this church. This morning we are especially grateful for our small groups. We engage in groups in a variety of settings, at a variety of times, for a variety of purposes. We thank you for what you do in our lives through our groups. They continue to challenge us, encourage us, mature us. We pray for the ministries of churches around us, and we think especially of the Rushford United Methodist Church today, Pastor Russell and the people of this church. Thank you for their years of ministry to their community. May it continue, and may they sense your blessing upon them as they serve you in the community of Rushford and beyond. We pray for the needs of Royal Family Kids Camp. We thank you for this camp, and the ways in which you have worked in this camp through the 21 years. And now as entering this next year, we pray for people who will help fill needs. We pray for the financial burden they're feeling. We ask, Father, that your grace would be upon the leadership of the camp, that they would have a sense that you are with them. We pray for the children who will be in this camp. May, they, may their lives be changed this week. We think of the world beyond us and pray for the people of Haiti. We thank you for the medical dental team that's just returned for their work. We ask that the seed that they planted would grow deep and would bear amazing fruit even beyond what we might dream or imagine. In this nation of people you love and such great needs. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who continue to suffer for their faith. We think of the people of Benin and Burkina Faso who had a recent attack and the people grieving those deaths. And we pray for the Elliots who have been taken captive and are held hostage by Al-Qaeda. And we pray, Father, that you would protect them and you would give them courage and strength in the midst of this difficult time. And may they so reveal the love of Christ that their captors might see you in a different light and they might, they might have an experience with you that would transform them, that they might see the depths of your love for them. Father, we pray for your grace upon all that we do here. We ask that you would continue to bless our worship, open our hearts to you, our minds to you, and we ask all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of the New Testament from Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian." All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord.
In one way or another, the, the questions that we're asking about the church, about uh, being a Christian, about how we understand our faith, really comes back down to, boils down to the question of what is the kingdom like? What does the kingdom look like? What is the kingdom about? What's, what's the, the mission of the kingdom? What's the power of the kingdom? What's the passion of the kingdom? How do you describe the kingdom? This is such an important question because the scripture seems to tell us that the kingdom is a direct reflection of the king. And so what we say about the kingdom and what we believe about the kingdom, we are in essence saying, this is what we believe about God, who is the king of the kingdom. The characteristics of the kingdom are the characteristics of God. What we believe is the passion of the kingdom is the passion of God. What we believe is the mission of the kingdom is the mission of God. And so it sets that question into a much more serious context because we don't just talk about the kingdom, we're really talking about God. And Jesus comes to reveal the nature of the kingdom and the nature of God. And the season of Epiphany, this idea of revelation and manifestation, a part of that of this season is looking at the early days of Jesus' ministry and and asking, what does Jesus reveal, what does Jesus manifest about the kingdom? What is he telling us about who God is and what God's kingdom is about? Because it sets the stage for everything else that Jesus is going to tell us and all about his ministry that eventually goes to the cross and the tomb and Pentecost and beyond. And one of the places that the church has, has looked at in this season as giving us an understanding of the kingdom and what Jesus is revealing is this passage from Luke chapter 4. Jesus is beginning his ministry and things are going well. He's all around the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and the people are loving him. They are amazed at his teachings. He keeps going to synagogues and all these different communities and teaching. And they are astounded at his teaching. And the word is spreading that Jesus has got something that we want. And people are embracing him and loving him. And then he comes to the town of Nazareth, his hometown. It's always hard to come home. Right? You, you go away from a place for... 10, 15, 20 years, and, and it was a good place for you, and life was great there, and you go back, and it's never quite exactly the same. Things change. We change. Every time I read this passage, I think of a phone conversation I had about 25 years ago. Out of the blue, I got a call from someone who was a part of the, the church in Evansville, Indiana, where I was raised. And my dad was the pastor. And they were wondering if I might be interested in talking with them about becoming the pastor of their church. And my first thought was, oh, that would be awesome. I get to go back home. Uh, my, you know, much of my spiritual formation took place in that church. 
I have great feelings about that church. I get to reconnect with a lot of friends who still live in Evansville that I hadn't seen for a long time. And I was, my mind was racing about this could be really great. And so I said, well, let me think about it. I hung up the phone. And then I really began to think about it. And I realized this is going to be hard. I was 18 when I left there. And this has now been 20-some years later, probably. And maybe not even that long. And so I'm thinking, I'm picturing standing up in front of the congregation or leading a meeting and, and saying something challenging, trying to get the congregation to move and trying to, to, you know, say some things that might be hard and watching those who knew me as a child look at me and say, what are you talking to us about that for? I remember when you did that. Yeah, I know, I know. And I decided maybe it wasn't a good idea. It's hard to go home. Jesus comes into Nazareth, and the people embrace him. And he comes into the synagogue, and they hand him the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls it to chapter 61, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is talking about me. And they think it's great. I sort of had this sense, even though they're saying, isn't that Joseph's son? Didn't he build this cabinet for us? Didn't, didn't, he, didn't he put up that, the framing of that house for us? I sort of had the feeling at the same time they're saying, wow, such a great success from our hometown. This is awesome. I don't think they quite grasp everything that he's saying, but they're okay with it. But Jesus can't leave it alone. He has this, Jesus never can quite leave it alone, can he? You know, he, if he had just stopped there, he would have walked out of the synagogue, the hero, I mean, they would have given him the Gatorade bath and it would have been the whole thing. It would have been awesome, Right? This is terrific, but he can't let it go. And he says to them, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. Do in your hometown what you've done in all these other places. And he says, let me just remind you of a couple of stories. And when he gets done telling the stories, they grab him, drag him out of the synagogue, and attempt to throw him off a cliff. Some stories, right? I mean, his people who are cheering him on and thinking this is great are now ready to kill him because he tells a couple of stories. Actually, just reminds them of a couple of stories. And these are not parables that Jesus creates. These are stories that are a part of their scriptures. He takes them back to the days of the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And he says about Elijah, in the days of Elijah... During this time of famine, there were all kinds of widows in Israel. But God didn't send him to any of those widows. He sent them to a widow in Sidon. Sidon is the hometown of the most infamous, probably the most infamous queen in Israel, Jezebel. 
Sidon is all about Baal worship, and Jezebel brings that with her when she marries Ahab and institutes that into the Israelite culture. And not only that, but she murders hundreds, if not thousands, of of God's prophets. I mean, in many ways, she is the personification of, of evil in that day. And when God chooses a widow to connect with Elijah to help him and him to help, that's where he sends him. You can sort of sense the hair on the back of their necks beginning to stand up. What are you trying to say, Jesus? He said, but then he tells another story. He says, now in times of Elisha, there were a lot of people who had leprosy in Israel. But God didn't send the prophet to any of them. He didn't heal any of them. He healed Naaman, who was a captain in the Syrian army. And the Syrians and the Israelites simply did not get along. In fact, they hated each other. They were, the Syrians were continually attacking Israel. They did it during the reign of David. David kept rebuffing them and defeating them. But eventually, they started making inroads. And it would not be uncommon at all for them to, to send raiding parties into northern Israel and, and destroy things and take a bunch of captives back with them, which is exactly how Naaman got connected with Elisha in the first place. There was a, a young girl who was a slave from Israel, and she told him about Elisha. And now they're really irritated. Just because he tells them a couple of stories, their own stories. And I think they're irritated so much so that they're ready to murder Jesus. Because in essence, Jesus is saying that God's kingdom is not about, it's not about your heritage. It's about faith. God's kingdom is not about necessarily following the rules. It's about faith. I mean, Israel has a problem with these other nations, not just because they're enemies, but because they reject Yahweh. And they, and, and they try to get the Israelites to turn away from Yahweh. They don't follow the rules. They don't practice all the, the, the rituals that the Israelites are commanded to practice. They don't do it right. And even if they have faith, they don't do it right. And so therefore, they deserve to be rejected. They're not supposed to be in the kingdom. In fact, part of the reason we exist as this people is to keep them out of the kingdom. And Jesus says, having faith and not obeying the rules is better than obeying the rules and having no faith. And to people who have staked everything religiously on obeying the rules, that's not a word they want to hear. I suspect if all of us thought about it a minute, we probably would be able to think of a people group that we think don't follow the rules and they really shouldn't be considered a part of the kingdom. It may be someone who has different political views, someone different theological views, somebody from certain countries of the world, someone who who maybe has lived such a, a terrible life and and then they they make a 
a turnaround, but we're skeptical about whether they really mean it or if they're just trying to get out of trouble. We all build walls. We all, we all have, we all see things through our, our filter of judgment. And I think this passage is telling us, at least one thing is telling us, is that in the kingdom, we can't do that. Because the the hardest part about all of this is that Jesus says to the people of Nazareth, in essence, they're in and you're not. It's not just they're in with you, but your hearts are hard. You don't have faith. And therefore, you're on the outside of the kingdom looking in. And they have faith despite everything else. And they're on the inside looking out. You know, this, this, many people connect Isaiah 61 with uh, the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. The year of Jubilee was uh, every 50th year. The, uh, the God said, We're gonna, some things are going to change here. There are three things, three basic things that are involved in the year of Jubilee. One is in that the land rests. They don't plant anything. What's interesting is that they don't plant every seven years. So that means they don't plant the 49th year and they don't plant the 50th year. In order to give the land a rest, and I would suspect to give the Israelites a chance to really trust God. Because they aren't, they aren't harvesting anything for two years. They aren't planting anything in the soil for two years. And God says, trust me, I will take care of you. The second thing that happens is that people who have had to give up their land for whatever reason get it back. All the land returns back to its original owner every 50 years. And so if you lost your land by mismanagement or you had a debt and this was the way you paid off your debt and your family land was given to someone else and the year of Jubilee, it came back to you. And the third thing is that all the slaves, all the Israelite slaves, were set free. So if you had a debt and you couldn't pay it and you didn't have land to sell to someone, you indentured yourself to another Israelite. And you became their slave, but only until the year of Jubilee. And when the year of Jubilee came, all the debts are cleared and you're set free. And it became not just a, an every 50-year event, but it actually became something that was symbolic of the, of the eschatological understanding of the kingdom. That when the Messiah comes, he is going to do all of this on this massive scale. And instead of going back every 50 years, he's going to do something once and for all to release Israel and to... Re- and to bless Israel and to give Israel all the things that they've dreamed of through the years is going to be the ultimate jubilee. It was so ingrained into their mindset and their culture. This is what they're looking for. And when Jesus says, this is me, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, they're hearing Jesus say, now I'm going to set Israel free. And then he throws them this curve. And says, I'm going to set them free too. 
And really, you're going to be set free if you have faith. The thing that scares me the most about this story is that for me, and I would suspect for many of us, if we had to place ourselves in this story, more than likely, we're the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. We know. We've been around it. We've lived it. We follow the rules. And the question for us is, but do we live in a spirit of faith? Do we live in a spirit of openness to God? Or are we so blinded by our, by our filters that, that we just can't imagine God ever getting through to these people? And you know, this widow, the widow who had faith didn't mean that everybody in Sidon had faith, but she did. It didn't mean that everybody in Syria had faith, but Naaman did. And we paint these groups with such broad strokes that we we lump everyone together and we place our judgment on them all together when all the while God's at work in individual people's lives. And it's hard for us to see that, to anticipate that or expect that or sometimes even want that. And the problem with our hard-heartedness toward other people is that you cannot be hard-hearted toward people and not be hard-hearted toward God. And that's the danger. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. They're totally missing the work of God. Jesus comes back to Nazareth at least one other time we have recorded, and it says he couldn't do Many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And it, it gives me pause. Think about myself. Think about us. I want to be able to believe that God's work is bigger than the walls that I create. And the judgments that I make and the filters through which I see things. And faith isn't the end, it's, but it is the beginning. And it's awesome that we know so much about the scriptures. And it's awesome that we know a lot about how to, to live as Christians. And, and, and our ethics and our morals are connected to that. And, and we shouldn't shun those. But in the midst of all of that is the heart of it. Faith, trust, openness to God. Yesterday at the, at the seminar that, that Lilius Trotter Center put on, which was terrific, so good, so helpful. And, um, but, but the one theme that kept going through everyone's presentation was this sense that in order to, to be be Christ to Muslims. We can't just see them as Muslims. We have to see each person as as someone created in the image of God. Someone who is loved by God. Someone for whom Christ died. And Christ came. And to begin to shatter the walls and the barriers that we put up about groups of people that we just don't think 
are worthy. And we do that because we have forgotten that we aren't worthy. None of us. We're going to come to this table here in just a couple of minutes. And and this is a table of grace. If we came to this table because any, we only came to this table because we earned it, we would all stay in our seats. None of us are that good. But the grace of God in Christ changes us and invites us and welcomes us. And he's simply asking for faith, for trust. As little as or as much as we know. Do we want Jesus? To have a spirit of openness to Jesus. A spirit of faith and trust in how we live our lives. I've got to be honest, this passage scares me. Not just because of who I think I am in the story, or at least might be in the story. But because something in the back of my mind is always wanting to say, yeah, but. And Jesus doesn't seem to say that. He just says, I want faith. I want you to trust me. I want hearts that are open to me. Because eventually, the alternative to that is the modern day spiritual equivalent of wanting to throw Jesus off a cliff. I pray that God will fill us with faith. Holy Father, we want to thank you for your grace to us. We do not deserve it, but we are desperate for it. Soften our hardened hearts. Give us the mind and the spirit of Jesus. Give us eyes to see as Jesus sees and hearts that desire Jesus. Father, we pray for your anointing and your blessing upon the bread and the cup here before us today. We pray that it will be food for our souls and that as we come, we will come in a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you've done for us and in a spirit of faith and openness for what you, we want you to do for others. We pray this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. 
every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you are released by Rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then return to your seat by the outside aisle. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. We do have trays of bread and cups. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, uh, just let the usher know as your row is released and we will be glad to serve you there in your seat. I also have gluten-free wafers here and cups. Just let me know if you would like those as you come forward. I, I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. might be the first time you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to Christ with a desire to trust him, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, heavenly Father.
We stand for the closing hymn. the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore.